0: Welcome to TYT's The Conversation. I am your host, Adrienne Lawrence. And today I bring you Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris, professor at American University in Washington, DC, where she directs the polarization and extremism research and innovation lab, Perel in the Center for University Excellence. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Miller Idris. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome, super happy to have you. In part because you have extensive experience, two decades plus researching radical and extreme youth culture. And your most recent book, Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right, which just came out at the end of October. It seems so incredibly timely for right now. Why is that? Yeah, unfortunately, I I, I say that I, I used to study fringe
1: subcultures um, in a country overseas where I spent really 20 years studying Germany. And all of a sudden, the work that I was doing became much more mainstream. So it's um, it was not predictable, although I think the events over the last four years, five years in this country have made it a more predictable situation. Um, So I'm not that surprised that we are where we are right now. Although, of
0: course, wish that I were not uh, here talking to you with relevant expertise. Well, we are glad to have you here, despite the unfortunate circumstances. And to kind of flesh a little bit of that out more, it seems that it's rooted in toxic masculinity. That that is the true driver in this far right violence, both on and offline, but these hypermasculine traits that we now know to be toxic, they seem to always been present underlying. So what is it that's really changed in our society that's made these traits so dangerous for us now? Well, I think I'm so glad you asked that
1: question because it so often doesn't come up in discussions of white supremacist extremism or anti government extremism. Um, only recently I feel like have we started to connect more systematically these misogynistic male supremacist frameworks with white supremacist frameworks and anti government frameworks. This idea of a threat which unites all of them. And the ways in which a lot of these same groups pose the threat, threat of you know anti gender stuff studies anti-feminism attacks on higher education for um changes in kind of um transgen- transgender rights or transgender bathrooms. I mean, there's just pronoun usage. There's a whole host of cultural changes around gender that get attacked. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of this toxic masculinity now, also often directed toward women. So connections to domestic violence and gender based violence are also very high across these movements. But those dots are are still not connected often enough, either in the national level
0: or the global level. Which is it seems very Uh, easy for me to see in terms of what I something I do on Twitter often is show the handshake between racism and sexism as these ideologies are aligned in terms of really pushing out otherness. So it is still a shock to me that people are not connecting these dots. Um, But it also seems that there's definitely been that uprising in this male focused hate group area called the Boogalow Boys. And then we have the incels and Proud Boys, and they all seem to be very North American focused, if not centered in the United States. And I know you have a lot of experience studying this abroad and in the United States. So can you tell us why the US is so vulnerable to hosting these toxic masculinity groups? Yeah, we've
1: seen a big rise of the toxic masculine groups and the intersections. And one of the things I want to say is I think you're absolutely right that what we're seeing here are parallel hierarchies of superiority and inferiority that kind of connect across white supremacy male supremacy christian supremacy all of those kinds of dehumanizing um ideologies and things that 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 position one group as more as better or superior to others and so it's like they have the similar kind of scaffolding and one allows an expansion into the other domains I think in in ways that eases that transition or, or creates a kind of overlap between them. So we have seen a 320% increase in right wing terror globally. It is a global issue and the gender based violence part of that is also global and I think that's really important to mention. But in the U.S., you're absolutely right. There's been a big upsurge in these kind of male supremacist and incel groups, as well as the chauvinist, Western chauvinist groups that are men's rights only, like the Proud Boys. And so we're seeing it, and I think it's it's hard not to connect that to. The, um, the hypermasculine um, narratives and, and language across coming across from this administration and from the president himself. Although it's also really important to note that the roots of this are started far before this administration. So I think there's been a normalization and mainstreaming in this administration, but we were seeing you know the incel violence against women um, before this administration came in.
0: And you say that the roots of this started far before this administration. And of course in my limited knowledge, I can't help but guess is this a part of the fact that we have this westernized white culture where we essentially lie to people in our education system and tell them how great they are and how great essentially the American people are without giving the full fledged truth. So I'm wondering, like what are the roots there? Please tell us. Yeah, again, the education, the lack of critical education, the lack of
1: critical histories. I mean, that's that is changing, but there's so much tension um, anytime a critical history is introduced, anytime, you know, the 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 narratives that we that I was taught in my generation that 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 children are still taught today about Thanksgiving, about Native American histories, right? Um, these kind of kind references are very deeply rooted. And so it gets much harder. To disentangle those uh, those violent kind of um, those violent histories and acknowledge with some kind of humility where we are today and where those roots have been.
0: Wow, um, it's it's unfortunate to really see all of this culminate and come forward, especially because it poses such a threat to the physical safety and well being of so many of us. And one of the newer groups, um, definitely that still makes me go, who uh, is the Boogaloo Boys? And forgive me if I'm not saying that correctly. But they seem to intersect so much with your work, and what is it about it the, about these new groups that really allows them to latch on to a base? Boogaloo is a really
1: interesting example because it is it started as a joke in online with teenagers. And even I've seen patches that they use calling themselves a meme-based insurgency. It's really more a mobilizing idea than it is a group. It refers to civil war or insurgency, and it gets layered onto other groups like a hashtag. And that makes it really popular for a wide range of groups who want to advocate for revolution or civil war or violent insurrection and rise up against what they see as a tyrannical government. Government. Um, but it, it, you know, can be tagged onto the Proud Boys. It can be tagged onto a militia group. It can be you know, it has intersections with a whole range of them. So it's it's less like a movement than it is an organizing idea. And I think that's part of how it has spread so quickly across social media, like a contagion or a virus, because it's an idea that can just get layered on or added to something
0: else. Wow, that's very scary because we also know how powerful ideas are and how quickly they can spread. And so I know something that you recently wrote for CNN in explaining that COVID-19 the lockdowns have brought a lot of high level anxiety, depression, social isolation to teens, making it more likely that they could be vulnerable to this perfect storm of extremism. So how can we balance this volatility to teens yet keep everyone safe?
1: Well, I think the first thing a lot of parents and caregivers who are really on the front lines now, you don't have as many teachers interacting with kids in person or coaches or employers or the parents of friends who might be able to spot those kinds of warning signs. So parents and caregivers really need to be alert to watching out for the kind of language that that teens are using. What have they been exposed to? Are they talking about conspiracy theories? Are they circulating an anti-Semitic claim about the virus or its origins or an anti-Asian claim? Right? What is what's going on, and where did they hear it, and use that as an opening to find out what's going on? Um, but also, I think it's really critical to interrogate some of these histories of race and inequality and injustice in this country that get exploited and used, and that there's there's no coincidence here that we saw mobilization around the Black Lives Matter movement in particular this summer. And I think you know when when white parents in particular take kind of colorblind approaches to um, not having conversations with their kids about race or. Inequality, quality. It leaves open all the online discourse, you know, um that, that someone else just explains they think that, you know, what's going on to them and, and leaves them with scapegoating and propaganda and misinformation instead of conversations from the roots
0: and ground up within their families. Wow. And I'm also wondering too, and maybe you've covered this in your book, which I think could be very interesting for a number of people out there, but what is the connection with these uh, essentially, these far right groups, and also the school shootings that go on, that we fortunately had some reprieve from by virtue of the fact of unfortunately having, you know, the coronavirus lockdown.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things we're seeing there is just the the very quick um, mobilization to violence among young people. And of course, the easy access to weapons, which is one of the things that makes the US unique compared to other countries in this regard. Um, But you also see the kind of the toxic online communities that celebrate. Um, So we know that whenever there's a school shooting, there's a high risk of a a copycat shooting, that there is a kind of contagious effect to this. And the same thing happens with um, with racist or misogynist violence, where they take kind of inspiration, or even live stream these attacks to get notoriety and inspire, supposedly inspire followers. And I think there are a lot of overlaps there that haven't been adequately explored.
0: Well, hopefully somebody definitely does that exploration and hopefully it will come to an end. Thank you so much for joining us. And can you please tell us where they can find you and hate in the homeland? Yes,
1: they can find "Hate in the Homeland" either at Princeton University Press's website on Amazon.com and at American.edu backslash
0: peril. P-E-R-I-L is our lab, our
1: research lab.
0: Fantastic, Dr. Cynthia Miller Edris. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The conversation continues. I am Adrian Lawrence, and I am joined by Melt Magazine reporter Eddie Kim. Eddie, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me back, Adrian.
0: Yes, and you wrote something very, very powerful recently that is actually kind of close to my heart because I voted against Prop 22. That is the California proposition here. That pretty much allows Uber, Lyft drivers, Postmates, any of these app based kind of couriers to not necessarily pay their workers employee wages. And I didn't think that was awesome, but can you explain to our viewers Kind of what your thought is and why you thought that, hey, this fundamentally reshapes how labor is negotiated and exploited.
2: So to talk about the present, I wanna go back a little bit to last year. And that's when a California law called AB5 was passed by the legislature. And what that did was it said, hey, all these freelancers that are basically working full time, you guys need to be certified as employees, not contractors. And um, unfortunately, it had some blowback. It ended up hurting a lot of freelance journalists, for instance, musicians and artists. So in a lot of ways, this law that was sort of targeted at Uber and Lyft and Rideshare, it ended up sort of backfiring. And it became vulnerable to an attack by just those companies. And that's what this Yes on Prop 22 campaign was. It was Uber, Lyft, and their affiliates like DoorDash, GrubHub, Uh, coming together and saying, we don't like AB5 and we're going to take this to the ballot. We're going to petition the voters of the state and get this and, and let the people vote on it. And unfortunately, what happened was, the people voted and they voted for this campaign, which was making it sound like, oh things are bad right now. And if you vote for Prop 22, we'll give better wages, we'll give better benefits. This will be more freedom for drivers. It all sounded like peaches and cream, but Uh, really what it was locking in was the status quo before AB5 was passed. The status quo where uh, certain kinds of contractors just don't make the same kind of wages. They don't get uh, liability protections. They don't get insurance protections. So yeah, in that sense, what it did was it took the fight about what the future of employment ought to be. And it said, hey, we're just going to lock in the status quo. We're going to keep this third kind of employee that's not full time it's not part time the perma lancer it's a gig economy perma lancer so that's kind of the harms here is that we tried to stop the gig economy dangers on workers and it backfired and prop 22 happened
0: and you know what i do very much As I kind of conveyed, I wasn't very much against or I wasn't very much for Prop 22. And I thought it to be pretty problematic in part because it definitely seemed like it was exploiting people. And so you do raise a good point in terms of now that these app based companies, Uber, Lyft, Postmates, they don't have to pay their workers kind of these fair wages that are out there. But still it seems that a stunning 58% of voters voted for Prop 22. So I guess, where do you think things went wrong in terms of them seeing it the way that we see it?
2: I think to get at this, the reason why, you have to kind of look at the pros and cons of direct democracy. This ballot proposition initiative where if you petition enough people and get those signatures, you can get pretty much any issue onto the ballot. That's actually how Prop 8, the ban on same sex marriage in California happened. It went to the voters because of a petition. And in this case, you had a petition and the state record breaking campaign in terms of just funds. It was more than $200 million spent by the yes on Prop 22 camp, Uber and Lyft and etc. California is an expensive state in which to campaign. That's true for anyone, but especially on issues like this. If you have the money, you get to flood the airwaves with your message. And in this case, Uber and Lyft's message was, hey, things are bad right now and Prop 22 will make drivers lives better. It'll give them agency, it'll give them better wages, it'll give them this and that. Without the context of, hey, other laws like AB5 and reforms to that law to improve it we're trying to get serious living wages increase wages above what prop 22 would give protections above what prop 22 would give insurance benefits above what prop 22 would give it would provide more workers these benefits than what prop 22 would give and that was not part of the messaging right because in political campaigns you don't tell the nuanced truth you tell your truth and so prop 22 passed i think largely on that confusion Everyone thinks that the gig economy has harms. I think, especially in a state like California, that understanding is pretty common among the electorate, but not when you subvert the message and say, hey, drivers actually want Prop 22 too. I mean, I don't know about you, Adrian, but I think it's pretty gross that people who drive for Uber were getting pings on their phones saying, you could lose your job if you don't vote for Prop 22. I mean, that's a real thing that happened. And there's even lawsuits over that because of how employers can or cannot put political campaigns in front of their employees. But again, they're not employees, they're contractors, right? So we see these sort of holes in this system. And, and yeah, I think in this case, the message was Prop 22 will make things better, rather than the reality of this will continue exploitation of a new class of workers. And especially in light of the pandemic and the harms of that, the economy, it's a worrisome future.
0: And Eddie, you brought up a really good point in terms of the apps showing these alerts to the drivers. And also, I remember getting them myself for Postmates or Uber. And I found them to be very disturbing in part because I would think that if I were a driver and I worked for that company, I would assume that you are monitoring me in some form or fashion. But also when you do this hesitance of you could lose your job, that would definitely instill a considerable amount of fear in me and make me want to vote you know, for Prop 22. So I guess, how, how do these companies really reconcile this?
2: I don't think there's much reconciling to be done on the agenda right now. I think this was an existential fight. I think there is truth to Uber and Lyft's claim that if Prop 22 had not passed, if the constraints and regulations of av 5 had remained, that they would have to seriously raise prices and cut employees in the state. I think that's true, but that's also the reality of these tech companies, these gig economy companies that get valued at billions of dollars, but can't turn a profit. You know, it's the reality of an exploitative business model that needs to stay that way in order to remain operational. So you know, it's not reconciling, the playbook is now set and that playbook is being taken to federal court and i think that you know they don't want to litigate this state by state they certainly don't want to spend this much on a ballot proposition again what they want to do is codify this third kind of employment these sort of permanent freelancers in the gig economy as an american norm and i think that's why you know in my mel magazine piece we call it a serfdom and i know what a serfdom is this is not literally that but it's this reclassifying of human labor and stripping away basically anything but the time that you literally do work as value and not giving protections and not giving benefits more freely. I think it it portends a trend that's gonna go to order other industries. And we've been seeing that for a while now.
0: Absolutely, and it very much seems to be an unfortunate aspect of the American way to see how much you can exploit your workers and get away with it. And when we look at things like these rideshare companies, I look at how much they're paying their CEO. For example, Uber CEO, uh, he made a total of 42.4 million in cash and stock in 2019. Yet we can't even get basic wages for drivers. So as someone who may use a rideshare company, it doesn't feel like that's a company I necessarily want to do business with. And so, how do you think that this is going to impact these companies ethically now that not all of us necessarily want to be a part of continuing to, you know, give them our money?
2: You know, I think for them, the matter of ethics comes down to do we have enough customers who think we're ethical? And in America, a lot of times, low costs feel like equality. It feels like freedom for things to be cheap. And I think consumers, including myself, we are very much seduced by. How affordable and how nice these rideshare companies, their product seemed to be. And so I think really when we come, when we talk about ethics, it's going to be a reckoning for the consumer to kind of see this as a peek behind the curtain and to understand that these business models are not sustainable and they require breaking people in half in order to stay sustainable. And I think these are trends that can be reversed, but they require a coming together of both consumer and worker to know that, hey, there is something better, and we can fight for more, and there will be vulnerabilities and sacrifices in that fight. But you know, in this case, there are a lot of harsh lessons to be learned about what money can do, and what politics can do. Even though we know, maybe, that the gig economy should not be around forever. So it's a, it's a difficult set of realizations, I think. But an important moment, certainly, and not just about California law.
0: Yep. And you're absolutely right in terms of it being difficult because as we had already seen, really, we had information that Uber wasn't necessarily pulling drivers from the streets when they were accused of sexual assaults and all the sexual harassments and the victimization that was going on and was not being addressed. And no one did anything about it then. So I do not necessarily know that anything will be done about it now. But I definitely know that we do appreciate your piece, Eddie. And if you can tell us, where can the viewers find you?
2: Well, definitely check out Mel Magazine at melmagazine.com or at WeAreMel on Twitter. I am Eddie Kim, E-D-D-I-E, Kim X, on Twitter and Instagram if you want to check me out. But thank you so much for the time, Adrian. It's been a pleasure to talk about this pretty sad thing, but I think there's optimism ahead for the fight against it.
0: Yes, very much so. And thank you so much for giving your wisdom, sharing it, and keeping up the voice. So we appreciate it.